You're going to love this. Just love it. New Year's. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com live. Live in Los Angeles in 2015 on KPFK Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. On 91.7 FM on Oregon Central Coast, KYAQ. And of course on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the Progressive Voices channel. On TuneIn, on Netroots Radio, on Indie Media Weekly, and now on iTunes. As I say, this is your broadcast. Welcome back. I guess I'm welcoming me back. Um, it's good to be back uh, live after a few weeks off, after the holidays, after our after our very special holiday special, which I hope you heard. If you didn't, it's not too late to do so. You can check it out at the kpfk.org archives or at bradblog.com. Or at iTunes, etc. Hope you had uh, some peace over the holidays, uh, at least for a few hours where you could find it. Um, looking uh, today, by the way, at these uh, horrifying, horrifying terrorist attacks on journalists and cartoonists at the uh, satirical French paper in Paris. Charlie Hebdo, I believe is the way that's pronounced. At this hour, 12 are dead, 15 others are wounded. The attack was said to be in response to a series of cartoons published by the paper lampooning the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Um, I've been working on uh, something uh, all, all, all day today uh, as this story has been developing. I think I'm going to hold it for a future show. Uh, I've been working on something for bradblog.com, uh, but like I say, uh, I, I think I'll hold it because... There's a lot of people with a lot to say right now in the wake of an attack like this uh, before all the facts are in, before really any of the questions are answered. Um, but I'll say this much. Uh, we have the right to offend people, at least in this country, if not everywhere in the world. We have that right. There is no question about that right. I stand with my fellow journalists and satirists and cartoonists and the inspiring people of France, frankly, who are uh, turning out in huge numbers. They are not cowering in the face of terrorism. We have every right uh, to offend anyone we like in the media. Uh, the question is why? Why would we? Why should we? Uh, anyway, 
hate to drop that uh, <laughs> that into the top of the show without going into more details on it. But if you have any thoughts on that, feel free to drop me a Twitter. Maybe we'll talk about this uh, next week. We'll certainly be talking about it at the Brad blog, I suspect. Uh, you can tweet me anytime. Now or then, at the Twitters, I am the Brad blog over there. Uh, coming up a little bit later in this show, uh, some good news. Oh, we'll need it. We will we'll need it by then. Uh, some good news uh, for a number of reasons. We've, we've got now a definitive solution to the main mystery, the main ballot mystery in the state of Maine that we talked about before the holidays a number of times. The mystery involved a... A paper ballot hand recount for the state Senate in Maine last year, in, in November, no, November 4. Uh, it was initially won by the Democratic candidate on election night, but a recount resulted in the discovery of 21 additional mystery ballots, all for the Republican candidate in the small Maine town where they had previously hand-counted, count, uh, hand hand-marked ballots on election night. Those additional 21 ballots resulted in the results being flipped to the Republican uh, running for the uh, state Senate out there in Maine. But since the poll books on election night showed 171 voters having voted at the single polling place in the tiny town of Long Island, Maine, and 171 ballots cast that day and then locked up in a box, the mystery remained of where these 21 previously unseen and uncounted Republican ballots appeared from when they went to recount that race. Well, now we have a solution to that remarkable mystery, one that was fit for uh, Murder, She Wrote's Jessica Fletcher in uh, the tiny main town. And there is good news in that solution on a number of scores. We're going to get to that later in the show. That's your tease. Uh, you'll have to stick around to hear how that resolved itself. And it resolved itself conclusively for a change. Uh, also, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report will be joining us as usual. We'll get you caught up on everything in the Green News world, and I mean everything that you might have missed over the past few weeks while we were off, uh, or at least as much as we can get into six minutes. Uh, she'll be joining me for that, including the news that, by the way, 2014 is now the hottest year on, pl on record for planet Earth. Lots ahead there. But first... Uh, on March 5, 2009, the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee, comprised of seven Democrats, seven Republicans, one independent senator, they voted 14 to 1 back in 2009 to investigate the CIA's post-9-11 detention and interrogation program. Yes, it's then secret torture program. The report reviewed six million pages of contemporaneous documentation, documents, cables, emails, other material provided by and created by the CIA and other high U.S. officials. Materials written during the program it itself were reviewed. Uh, the report detailed the various gruesome and brutal forms of torture or as the U.S. government referred to them at the time, enhanced interrogation techniques that were carried out by the U.S. government during the George W. Bush administration in our name against detainees held between 2001 and 2006. The 6,000-page report took five years and $40 million to compile and details systemic abuse by uh, the CIA uh, against detainees uh, it includes 525-page executive summary, uh, including 20 
key findings. Last April, when those key findings leaked out, we read each and every one of them on this program since the rest of the media largely looked the other way at the time. And then, in December of 2014, happy holidays. The Senate Intelligence Committee finally released a redacted version of the full 525-page executive summary to that report. The complete 6,000-page report remains classified at this time. The summary details actions by CIA officials, including the torture of prisoners and the misleading and false information about the CIA program given to government officials and the media. It reveals the existence of previously unknown detainees, that more detainees were subject to the harsher treatment than previously disclosed, that at least one was killed during the detention, and that the CIA official responsible was never held accountable, and that more forms of torture were used than previously disclosed. Many of the detainees, about a quarter of them, were completely innocent, completely innocent. They, were, they weren't even enemy combatants at all. Some were there due to mistaken identities uh, or who had been turned in uh, due to vendettas and reward money offered by the U.S. Examples of some of the torture and abuse of prisoners as carried out in our name by our government, and I'm self-censoring a bit here to keep out some of the more gruesome details, but the CIA had force-fed uh, force some prisoners orally and or anally for non-medical reasons in order to establish, quote, total control over the, de over the detainee. Threats to rape and murder were made against the children or family members of prisoners. In November 2002, the CIA killed at least one prisoner during interrogation by hypothermia. At least four prisoners with injuries to their legs, two with broken feet, one with an amputated leg were forced to stand on their injuries. Prisoners were told that they would be killed. For example, one prisoner was told, quote, we can never let the world know what I have done to you, unquote. Another was told that the only way he would be allowed to leave the prison would be in a coffin. One CIA interrogator threatened a prisoner with a power drill and a gun. Two prisoners were victims of mock executions, at least two of them. Several prisoners almost died, became completely unresponsive or nearly drowned during repeated waterboarding. Abu Zubaydah's eye was so badly damaged during his time in prison that it was surgically removed. Prisoners were kept awake for over a week, that's 180 hours, causing at least five to experience disturbing hallucinations. Prisoners were forced to use buckets for toilets, though for punishment the waste bucket might be removed from their cell. One prisoner was in a box the size of a coffin for 11 days. CIA interrogators forced a prisoner to stand with his hand over his head for two and a half days, putting a pistol next to his head. One detainee was subjected to ice water baths and 66 hours of standing sleep deprivation. He was later released because the CIA had mistaken his identity. I'm going through these details for a reason. You'll understand that reason momentarily. From the report itself... Quote, conditions at CIA detention sites were poor, were especially bleak in the, early pro in the early program. CIA detainees at the Cobalt Detention Facility, that's a code name for that uh, facility, at the Cobalt Facility were kept in complete darkness and constantly shackled in isolated cells with loud noise or music and only a bucket to use for wa human waste. The chief of interrogations described the Cobalt Facility as a dungeon. 
Again, this was done in our name, by our country, to people that we had captured, many of them completely innocent of anything. Back to the report itself. At times, the detainees at Cobalt were walked around naked or shackled with their hands above their heads for extended periods of time. Other times, the detainees at Cobalt were subjected to what was described as a rough takedown in which approximately five CIA officers would scream at a detainee, drag him outside of the cell, cut his clothes off, secure him with mylar tape. The detainee would then be... Uh, hooded and dragged up and down a long corridor while being slapped and punched. All of that, all of that and much more was going on in March of 2003 when a number of U.S. troops, of U.S. troops, happened to be captured by the Iraqi military during the uh, mission in the middle of our war against that country. And when videotapes of those U.S. troops held captive by Iraq were released publicly on March 23, 2003, George W. Bush offered this statement about those prisoners. If there is somebody captured, and it looks like there may be, I expect those people to be treated humanely. I expect them to be treated, the POWs, I expect to be treated humanely. And uh, uh, just like we're treating the prisoners that we have captured humanely. If not, the people who mistreat the prisoners will be treated as war criminals. The people who mistreat the prisoners will be treated as war criminals. George W. Bush there, March 23, 2003, talking about the Iraqi treatment of U.S. prisoners of war. Even while all that torture I was just reading to you was going on. As a matter of fact, at the very same time, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, believed to be one of the masterminds behind the 9-11 attacks, he was at that very time being waterboarded, which is simulated drowning for his 15th straight day. He was waterboarded in total some 183 times. The very next day after Bush said uh, mistreatment will be treated as a war crime, the waterboarding of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed ended for some reason. We don't know the reason, but it ended. But the horrific treatment of others continued for many years thereafter. Once again, from the Senate uh, torture report, the waterboarding technique was physically harmful, inducing convulsions and vomiting, vomiting. Abu Zubaydah, for example, became, quote, completely unresponsive with bubbles rising through his open, full mouth. Internal CIA records describe the waterboarding of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as evolving into, quote, a series of near drownings, unquote. That is from the U.S. Senate report. Following the release of the Senate's report in December of this past year, Dick Cheney, a champion of the torture program, was interviewed about it by Chuck Todd on NBC's Meet the Press. When he was asked about this program and about all the things I've just read to you in the days following the release of this report, here's what Dick Cheney had to say after its release. I'd do it again in a minute. Dick Cheney would do it again in a minute. No one has been held accountable for the horrors carried out in our name, for the very clear war crimes carried out in our country's name. After World War II, an international tribunal was convened in 1946. Japanese soldiers were put on trial for war crimes, including the brutal detention of prisoners that included water torture techniques such as waterboarding. Some of the same, uh, some of the defendants were sentenced to hanging and others to long prison terms. One of the prisoners who testified against their Japanese imperial 
army captors at those war crimes trials was a man by the name of James Robert Canning. He had been held and waterboarded under brutal conditions by the Japanese Kempetai at the notorious Bridge House in Shanghai under the mistaken premise that he was a British military spy. Canning was lucky to have escaped with his life at the time after being waterboarded and forced to sign a false confession. James Robert Canning died of natural causes a few years ago, but his son, Ernest A. Canning, a longtime California attorney, a Vietnam vet, and, as it turns out, a longtime legal analyst and contributor at the Brad blog, recently wrote about both the Senate report on CIA torture after 9-11 and his father's horrific torture by the Japanese during World War II. His article at bradblog.com is titled Torture, a War Crime Then and Now. You've heard him on this show in the past discussing all manner of legal issues. And now I'm delighted to have Ernie Canning join us now again to discuss all of this. Oh, Ernie, welcome back, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you, Brad. Good to hear from you. Good to have you here. Happy New Year's, my friend. Um, all right. Uh, thanks for, by the way, sharing your father's testimony, Some the remarkable uh, transcript from these uh, war crimes trials back in uh, 46 through 48, I believe it was. Uh, they were once classified. Uh, thanks for sharing those uh, with me and with readers at Brad Blog, where I recommend people go check them out. Um, so tell me uh, briefly about what happened to your father at the Bridge House in Shanghai about six years um, uh, prior to the war crimes trials that were held in uh, in 1946, when he was, I guess, taken, captured, uh, taken captive in October of 1942. Yeah, he was uh, he was a, a civilian. Uh, um, in fact, he was a plant manager of a, of a uh, piano manufacturing firm in Shanghai at the time, and uh, he was arrested by the Kempetai. They took him to Bridge House, and um, as, as I mentioned in the article, so there's just horrendous conditions. Uh, it was a very infamous torture chamber. Uh, you know, in addition to the uh, uh, to being uh, uh, beaten and all these other uh, techniques that were applied. We kept in mind that they, that they were kept in a like a a um, um, in small cells, crowded cells. They were they were filthy. There was vermin. There were there were, were uh, insects, and uh, they had one little bucket in which to uh, defecate. And uh, um, I, it's just hard to imagine how 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 these conditions were. And then what happened in his case when uh, he wouldn't confess that he was a British agent? Uh, they told him they would make his body talk. And uh, they tied him down to uh, to a bench. Uh, two people sat on his uh, uh, chest and stomach, and two held his hand, his head in one place. And a, and a, a fifth uh, soldier uh, began pouring water on, over his his mouth and nose. And I think a lot of people don't realize waterboarding is essentially drowning someone. It, it, it just stops short of of death because they revive the person and do it over and over again. In my father's case. We're talking about a six-hour ordeal where uh, he would lose consciousness, then they would roll around on his uh, stomach to get the the you know the water that was in his lungs out and revive him so they could repeat the process. And by the time it was finished, uh, he told them he'd sign anything they wanted, even though he knew very well that it wasn't true and that he would, thought he was signing his own death warrant. So um, 
you know, this whole the thing that bothered me the most, even in the executive summary, is that spends so much time talking about the effectiveness of torture, which or its ineffectiveness, and, and that's a given. You know, people will tell you anything to make it stop, so it's worthless in terms of extracting uh, actionable intelligence. But uh, the interesting thing was his testimony and those of the other prisoners. Uh, uh, was used to uh, convict uh, a lieutenant general uh, under what's called the uh, the uh, doctrine of command responsibility. Even though he didn't personally participate in the torture, he was responsible for his subordinates. And that same principle, that that guy got a, a life sentence. That same principle, if applied to Cheney and the other people in the Bush administration, should have resulted in the same life sentence for them. Well, you know, I, I was struck by, uh, in reading through the, the testimony of your father from that transcript uh, and the description of the conditions at the Bridge House in Shanghai where he was held and tortured, Ernie, uh, I was struck by uh, some of the exact same things we saw in the U.S. Senate report. You've mentioned a couple of them, uh, the, you know, g given a bucket uh, for their waste for months uh, and in some cases years on end, uh, the, the bubbling water. Uh, coming out through the uh, through the nose of uh, was it Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or Abu Zubaydah, one of those, um, you know, during the waterboarding. Uh, so many of the conditions in 1942 at this uh, Japanese prison in Shanghai seem to be echoed in this U.S. Senate report that was released a month ago. And, you know, it's it just we've heard about this. We know there was war crimes trials, uh, war crimes trials after World War Two. But to see the descriptions by the people who were there, by the people who went through it and see that they are almost identical to so much of what was done to prisoners in our name over the past few years. And then see George, you know, George W. Bush saying, oh, if there's war crimes, they'll be held accountable. Seeing Dick Cheney say, uh, do it again in a minute. Uh, it, it, it a brings it all home, and b it's kind of infuriating, is it not? Well, it's it's not just infuriating, but you have to realize a couple things that that I think that that actually the CIA torture was worse than than what was done to my father and his fellow prisoners. Because, uh, for example, it, it, you know, uh, keep in mind that we don't know. Like, for example, the Al, Al Libby, when they talk about 171 times, are they talking about it one, you know, uh, it, uh, multiple uh, uh, drownings over a period of time? My father's ordeal was six hours of waterboarding. They had the videotapes, and the CIA destroyed them, so nobody's really going to know for sure whether, whether uh, it was as prolonged. The other thing is that what the Japanese did was relatively crude compared to what the CIA did. Uh, and as you recall, I, I had a five-part series at the Brad blog on the history of CIA torture and the methods that they used, the way that it was worse, at least, uh, uh, you know, the people at Bridge House had one another in the same cell uh, so they, they could communicate. Uh, they used uh, a, a method that was developed over uh, what's, what uh, essentially was a uh, – a Manhattan Project of the Mind that was conducted between 1950 uh, and 1962 at a cost of a billion dollars a year, where they came up with these techniques of total isolation, sleep, uh, deprivation, uh, and then uh, uh, standing in stress positions, that sort of thing, uh, prolonged uh, uh, stress positions, which they call self-inflicted pain, which absolutely destroy the personality when they when when applied to these people, and uh, you know what I didn't see in the Bridge House uh, uh, testimony was people being stri stripped naked and and doused into freezing water or uh, 
some of the things that mm-hmm. were done by the CIA uh, that were were actually worse than what what was done uh, at Bridge House, and and here are these uh, these prosecutions uh, over what happened at Bridge House, and nothing has been done with respect to what the CIA and in fact the U.S. military also carried out. Nothing has been done, uh, despite the similarities. And you're right, the fact that we've had uh, decades to perfect these techniques that were carried out by the Japanese that we threw them in jail for for life. Now, uh, to to be fair-ish, and I hate to do this, uh, but Dick Cheney was specifically asked when he was on Meet the Press, uh, you know, about uh, the war crimes trials against the Japanese. And he said uh, Japanese soldiers were prosecuted, quote, for a lot of stuff, not for water- waterboarding, Cheney said, quote, to draw some kind of moral equivalent between waterboarding judged by our Justice Department not to be torture and what the Japanese did with the Bataan Death March and the slaughter of thousands of Americans with the rape of Nanking and all the other crimes they committed, that's an outrage. It's really a cheap shot, unquote, says Dick Cheney. Would you uh, like to do you have any response to uh, his his response on that point? Ernie Cannon? Yeah, I'd like I'd like uh, uh, the former vice president to read the transcript that uh, you can read at the, the Brad blog that we put in PDF for, format, which shows that they that a lieutenant general received a, a life sentence precisely because of waterboarding, among other tortures. We uh, signed a uh, the U.N. Convention Against Torture. When I say we, I specifically mean Ronald Reagan signed it. In 1984, uh, it was ratified by the U.S. Senate. Uh, it says uh, very clearly, Article 1, any act by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or a third person information or a confession, punishing him for an act he or a third person has committed or is suspected of having committed or intimidating or coercing him uh, or a third person for any reason based on discrimination of any kind when such pain or suffering is inflicted by or at the instigation of or with the consent or acquiescence of a public official or other person acting in an official capacity is barred, is prohibited. And that prohibition, according to Article 2, is absolute, quote, no exceptional circumstances whatsoever may be invoked to justify torture, including war, threat of war, internal political instability, public emergency, terrorist acts, violent crimes, or any other form of armed conflict. Uh, It cannot be justified. Uh, This treaty, frankly, that's the U.N. uh, Convention Against Torture, signed by Ronald Reagan, could not be more clear. Uh, how is it even imaginable that uh, this government, uh, this president, Barack Obama, or this Department of Justice, Eric Holder, could not uh, bring charges, at least a prosecution, uh, so that people like Dick Cheney get their fair day in court where they can make their case? I, I, I just The more I learn about it, the more unimaginable it actually is. Well, if you... If you... Look at the, and not just that treaty, there's a 1949 Geneva Convention that's applicable in this. There's a, a convention that was uh, entered uh, uh, that establishes the command responsibility that goes back all the way to 1899. Um, and and if you're absolutely right. In fact, what you just said, uh, Robert Colville, who's the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, made it clear that torture is prohibited absolutely in any circumstances at any time. It cannot be practiced in war, in peace, during emergencies, during internal instability, any circumstances whatsoever. So the torture, it's clearly torture, and in fact, 
the legal basis for prosecution now is stronger than it was when my father testified at the war crimes trials in 1948. Japan, those war crime trials were brought about uh, by a uh, UN uh, uh, directive that was issued in, in 1943 and 1944, and Japan was not a party to the to those directives, but they still were bound by it. And now you have clear-cut legal obligation. Oh, uh, the president, under his duties uh, to enforce the law, and the uh, attorney general had a legal duty to initiate torch, uh, to initiate uh, legal action against Cheney and other members, and they simply used. Uh, sophistries because they found it politically inconvenient to do so. And that's quite damaging uh, uh, because uh, uh, it, what they're really establishing is a, an issue of impunity, which no one should have, including the President of the United States. Which is something that uh, uh, David Swanson, who's been a guest on the show many times uh, and a guest contributor at the Brand Blog, he wrote about uh, this week in an article called Presidents Are Gods, noting that, you know, governors go to jail all the time for, uh, you know, misappropriating funds, for taking bribes. But when presidents kill hundreds of thousands of people, when they oversee uh, torture, which is so clearly banned uh, by treaties we've signed on to, treaties that have the force of law, at least if you believe in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it, it's just remarkable. Ernie, I, I've got just a, another minute or two here with you, but um, did, did your father ever uh, talk about the torture he went through? Did you ever talk to him about what he went through at the uh, Shanghai oh. Bridge House personally? Yeah, as a matter of fact, most of what I, I knew was before. I, I didn't get those transcripts until uh, a British law professor forwarded them to me last year, but uh, or to 2013. But, uh, uh, yeah, most of what I knew. But, you know, the one nice thing besides the fact that they, they, they decided not to, to execute him, which uh, I wouldn't be able to tell the story if, if they had, is yes. that, you know, my, my parents actually met in, in a Japanese internment camp during the war, and uh, so I have also have that to thank for being here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, you know, and, and you bring up that uh, point. I noticed in reading those te uh, the transcripts, his testimony, is this my imagination, or uh, did he have a very wry sense of humor? Because it actually kind of comes across in... Uh, in his testimony, he's clearly, uh, you know, angry at those who held him captive, but uh, he, he seems to have a very wry and very dry sense of humor. Am I reading that correctly, Ernie? Typical, uh, typical Brett. <laughs> you know, he's British. He was British, and, and that was his sense of humor. I gotcha. Okay. Uh, very you know, good. Like when he was trying to describe that, that the the level of pain when you're being waterboarded, and he, yeah, I think he said something like, well, it, you know, it's difficult to, you know, to even imagine, let alone describe. Yes, uh, yes. What was the effect of, uh, I think one of the questions was when they were talking about waterboarding him uh, and what was the effect of that, and he says, uh, shoot, I don't have the quote right in front of me, but he says something like, the effect of that is that I was happy to tell them anything they wanted. Uh, and in fact, he did sign a false confession, and he is very lucky, uh, or I should say you are very lucky, that he was not executed uh, by the Japanese in yeah, that I, event. Yeah, I, I, I still boggles my mind why they went to all that uh, extent to, to torture him, to get him to sign the, the thing, and then they decide, uh, gee, we're not going to execute these people now after all. Although, you know, a couple of people did die in, in Bridge House from torture, including that Chinese man that they 
starved to death. Yes, Vong. And again, that was one of the points that reminded me in reading that testimony, it reminded me exactly of the Senate torture report and so many things that were talked about there. The man who was uh, left to uh, left to die uh, in, in the freezing cold, uh, again, done by our country in our name. It's this remains remarkable. It remains remarkable that there is no uh, accountability. Uh, before I let you go, Ernest Canning, uh, what do you feel should be done for accountability at this point, and do you think there's any chance in hell that it will ever happen? What should be done is obviously these people should be prosecuted. Uh, I, I think they should appoint a, a special prosecutor. I, a number of uh, uh, the ACLU, Human Rights Watch, and even the New York Times has, has asked for that. And I think a special prosecutor would be the ideal thing rather than than the uh, Justice Department, because there are probably people still in the Justice Department, uh, I don't know for sure, that were probably connected with you and other people that uh, uh, facilitated this. So I, I would think that a, a, an independent prosecutor or a special prosecutor would be the appropriate way to go. And if they don't want to go that route, then they should simply turn these people over to uh, uh, an international court of law and have them investigate it. Sounds good to me. Uh, by the way, you said that, that we're associated with you. Uh, you don't mean me. You mean John Yu, the guy John who Yu. wrote yeah, the... John not you. John Y-O-O. -O. Who wrote the uh, legal justification for carrying out this torture for the Bush administration. Ernest and, and Canning... Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but dared, he dared recently to, to come out with a response uh, uh, to uh, the Senate torture report in the Los Angeles Times where he still... Uh, trying to say that the issue here is is uh, efficacy rather than legality. It's amazing. Uh, read more about it uh, in Ernie's article, Torture, a War Crime Then and Now, uh, Standards Applied by the Allies After World War II to Those Who Tortured His Father, helped to explain why a special prosecutor should be uh, named to investigate Bush administration officials for war crimes. Today, Ernest, uh, your father, I suspect, would be very proud of you for shining a light on this issue for so many years at the Brad blog, including your five-part series a few years back on the history of CIA torture. Thanks for writing about it at Brad blog, and thank you, sir, for joining us today. Thank you, Brad. We're going to take a quick break here and come back with more broadcast. 
I will try to cheer you up, believe it or not, with the story of the main ballot mystery now solved, the solution, and Desi Doyen and the Green News Report, all straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. When you're on the street, when evening falls so No, you haven't entered a 1980s time warp. No, this isn't an episode of Murder, She Wrote, but it's kind of close. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. Yes, we could we could have used Jessica Fletcher in this tiny uh, from the tiny seaside town of Cabot Cove, Maine, to solve the mystery that took place in the tiny seaside town of Long Island, Maine. Though that mystery didn't include a murder. I feel like we need to cover this because we covered it a couple of times uh, before the holiday break. And we now have a solution. A solution to the mystery. To the main mystery. The main ballot mystery. Where 21 ballots showed up out of nowhere and flipped an election. We now know what happened. And we have a conclusive result. And this, I'm happy to say, may be the last 2014 election story that we will be covering on, uh, on the broadcast. I say maybe because, as I pointed out many times over the years, problems show up later, after elections, days, weeks, months, occasionally even years. This was one of those cases uh, that we now have a solution to. Okay. Uh, oh, and also, uh, Desi Doyne, uh, stand by. You'll be uh, joining us uh, shortly for the Green News Report to catch us up on uh, what happened while we were out over the uh, over the holiday breaks. Okay. Um before the break, uh, we had, uh, before the holiday break, we detailed this fascinating story, 21 phantom ballots all cast for a Republican state Senate candidate by the name of Kathleen Manchester in uh, this state Senate race in Maine's District 25. Uh, 21 phantom ballots were reportedly discovered during a recount in November of last year in the very close uh, Maine Senate race. Those 21 ballots ended up flipping the results from a slim victory for the Democratic candidate Kathleen Breen, uh, the one that she thought she had achieved on election night, and it became a win for her Republican opponent. The mystery in the town of Long Island included 171 ballots that were tallied by hand in the town of Long Island. They've only got one polling place there. 171 ballots were, uh, were, were counted by hand that night, the night of the election, on election night. 171 voters had voted in the town of Long Island on election day, November 4th. Uh, and then, during a recount of the entire race in the seven towns that made up Maine's District 25... 21 new ballots showed up in Long Island, all for the Republican uh, Manchester, Kathleen Manchester, resulting in her being certified as the winner of the recount, as overseen by that state's Secretary of State's office. Uh, the Democrat, Breen, contested that uh, those results, not knowing where those 21 ballots came from, because, in fact, on the night of the election, all of the ballots 
uh, were compared against the poll books, 171 ballots, 171 voters, and then those ballots were locked up in the ballot box by the town clerk, the same town clerk who had been uh, overseeing the polls all day at tiny Long Island's only polling place. Where did these 21 ballots come from that ended up flipping the race? No one knew. But uh, they named the uh, Republican the winner of that race. The Democrat contested, and in Maine, when there's a contested race like this, it goes to the state Senate to decide. And in this case, the state Senate, which had been Democrat, had become Republican following the November 4th election. So it would be Republicans overseeing the contest of this election. I believe it was four Republicans, three Democrats on the committee. In mid-December, then, once the uh, oh, I forgot to say that uh, w- once the uh, once the Senate had reconvened, had convened their new session with the Republicans in charge, they uh, provisionally seated the Republican uh, Kathleen Manchester. They made her a senator. They swore her in. They called it provisional, but she was then a a member of the Senate. And then in mid-December, shortly after it had convened. Uh, at Maine's State House in August, the Senate's special committee held a jam-packed hearing, according to the Portland Press-Herald's Steve Missler, initially spending uh, some, I think it was five hours, interviewing state and local election officials and other witnesses. Nearly 30 witnesses had been called to testify, including all of the election officials from Long Island who had been pulled into the controversy because people suspected them of wrongdoing. Mind you, Seven uh, towns made up Maine's District 25. Only one of them, Long Island, actually hand counts their own paper ballots. All of the other ones count by computers. They have paper ballots, but they're tallied by computers. And when we originally reported this at Prad blog, I noted that all of the other towns during the hand count, they all had adjustments to make. Uh, some were, you know, two, three, four votes off uh, for each candidate, one way or another. But Long Island's count on election night was perfect. When they did the, uh, the, the recount, the hand count in this case of all of the towns, only Long Island's was perfect, except for those 21 unexplained ballots that all went to the Republican. So now we've moved the clock forward. We're at the main state house. They're uh, interviewing 30 witnesses for hours on end, trying to figure out what happened. And then following lengthy uh, questions for and testimony by Deputy Secretary of State Julie Flynn, the one who had overseen the recount and signed off on the results and on those extra 21 ballots, only then did the committee do what they should have done in the first place, but which Republicans would not let them do at the time. Flynn and a detective from the state attorney general's office who had uh, c- who, who had custody of those ballots ever since the recount they came in with the box with the ballots the ones that had been publicly hand counted in Long Island once on November 4th and again on November 18th and they began to count all of Long Island's ballots again the Bangor Daily News uh, Mario Moretto reported the dramatic turn of events that happened next this way The first batch of ballots was designated as Lot A2, the batch at the center of the inquiry. 
The tally by Long Island election officials indicated there should have been 21 ballots there, nine for Breen, eight for Manchester, and four blanks, but, as was the case during the recount, 21 additional ballots for Manchester were included in lot A2 for a total of 42 ballots. The next batch, designated lot A1, should have had 50 ballots, according to the tally sheet. However, when it was opened, Manchester's 21 votes were missing from the second lot, from lot A1. Flynn, the uh, deputy secretary of state, immediately offered an explanation. Manchester's ballots from lot A1 had been counted twice. She said it's likely that the ballots were erroneously put into the next stack before the first was properly put away and then were rediscovered as new ballots. Of course, that's something they would have found out had they bothered to hand count them one more time. There was only 171 ballots. Had they bothered to hand count them one more time to make sure they got it right during that recount? Well, the room, uh, Bangor Daily News reports, fell silent as the news sank in for the partisan staffers and Long Island residents in in attendance. The new uh, recount, quote, showed exactly the results done by hand by officials in Long Island on Election Day. After the mystery was dramatically and publicly resolved in uh, in the State House. Uh, Manchester, who had been provisionally seated as a senator, the Republican, she uh, stood up and quickly departed. She came back a few minutes later and she announced her resignation. She said, I have full confidence that no one did anything wrong, that we have human error at the recount. I believe the people of District 25 have spoken and they have spoken to vote Democrat Catherine Breen as their state senator. And Catherine Breen was, in fact, sworn in. Shortly thereafter, a hand count of paper ballots at the only town in this district that did the hand count of paper ballots proved to be correct on election night and hand counting them again proved to be the solution again. It's always the solution. And not only was it a solution uh, just to the results, but it resulted in uh, both the Republican and the Democrat in this case and all of their supporters knowing exactly who won the race. There were no questions about it. The same cannot be said for ballots that have been counted all over the country with computers that count them either correctly or incorrectly. Nobody knows until they are counted by hand. As I've said many times on this show, that's the way to run a democracy with publicly hand-counted ballots that the winners and losers alike can know have been counted correctly. And now, correctly, the Democrat uh, in, uh, in, Long- in Maine, in District 25, now sits in the state Senate thanks to hand-counted paper ballots. And thus ends, if we're lucky, my coverage of the 2014 election. Once again, we are melting. I hate to say it to the rest of the country, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is not melting. Uh, my uh, family back in Missouri, I think the high today is 9 degrees, Woo! low of zero And yet here degrees. in California, we just hit an all-time record high for January 6th for yesterday. Uh, uh, 85 degrees yesterday, yeah. and it's about 80 degrees today. Hopefully no one in the rest of this country uh, hears that because they'll hate us even more than they already <laughs> do. Hey, Desi Doyen, uh, before we get to uh, our latest Green News report, very quickly, uh, some 
some pretty big news this week when uh, Governor Jerry Brown was sworn in uh, for his, uh, well, his second term. I don't know. What is he up to? It's four fourth, total it's or something? It's his fourth and like, final yeah. term now. He'll be term limited out. And, yes, he had uh, a, two major initiatives that he unveiled yeah. at his inaugural speech, and they you know deal with climate change. Um, and it's really astounding. The current uh, California renewable energy standard requiring utilities to get 30 percent of their energy from renewable sources, clean sources, by 2030, I think it is. Well, now he's just upped that. Well, before you say what he's up oh. to, I think we were supposed to, uh, the standards require us to cut by 20% our emissions, if I have this correctly, by 2020. That was the previous... That was for the emissions, and right. we're already oh, on okay. track to do that for the emissions. Okay. Now, when you have a renewable energy standard, what it does is it makes uh, renewable energy providers have some long-term contracts by requiring utilities to get their energy from a renewable energy source. So we're moving toward that already. California is well on its way to meeting the first standard that was passed by Governor Schwarzenegger a couple of years ago, and now uh, Jerry Brown is upping the ante. He says, let's go to 50% renewable energy electricity by 2030. That's in 15 years. We're going to go from what we're already at, which is about 24, I think now, we're going to go all the way up to 50. Across the entire state. Across 50% entire of state. our energy from renewables. Yep. It's a pretty big deal. And also, another big deal, we're going to talk about this on tomorrow's Green News Report at bradblog.com. We broke ground on the nation's first high-speed rail system in Fresno on Tuesday. And that's all just been happening in the past hours uh, yeah, since we uh, created our Green News Report that was meant to catch us up over the holidays, our uh, While We Were Out episode. Let's go ahead and run our latest Green News Report. While we were out. 2014 will go down as the warmest year around the globe in recorded history. Yep, that happened. Plus... The EPA issued new coal rules. Vermont shut down a nuclear plant. Germany breaks more renewable energy records. Republicans take over. And the planet loses another champion. You're going to get all that into six minutes? If you don't talk too much. All of that, maybe, and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Going on you know, almost two decades of no global warming, on every metric from polar bears on down, the global warming narrative has weakened. Oh, Fox News, even in 2015, the more the climate changes, the more you stay the same. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, we've been off for a few weeks over the holidays. A lot to catch up with. Good luck with that. <laughs> and as the year begins, oil prices continue to plummet. Yep. The stock market is freaking out about it. Drivers love it. But the question of whether this is a good or bad thing for the planet that's another issue. Cheaper gas prices means more people are buying more gas to travel more distances. They're less likely to buy electric and hybrid cars, more likely to drive big SUVs. It might be nice in the short term for the economy, but it seems like it's bad news for the planet. Yep, and another thing that's not so great news for the planet, Republicans this week took control of both houses of Congress, and their first move is a bill to force approval of the controversial Keystone XL pipeline from Canada. As we go to air, White House Press Secretary Josh Ernest flat out said President Obama will veto it. I can confirm for you that if this bill passes this Congress, uh, the president wouldn't sign it either. He's not going to veto it because he's against the Keystone XL pipeline. Josh Ernest says he will veto it because it's already going through an approved process through the courts, through environmental review, and so forth. 
Right. So it's still an open question whether the president will approve the Keystone XL pipeline in 2015. Meanwhile, a lot happened in the environment and energy while we were out. First, it's official, 2014 was the hottest year on record globally. That's according to preliminary data released by the Japan Meteorological Agency. NASA and NOAA will present their data in coming days, but the climate change denial media immediately downplayed the record, saying, hey, it's snowing in Japan. So how could there be global warming? Right. Anchorage, Alaska set a new record, too. For the first time in recorded history, for a full calendar year, temperatures in Anchorage never once dropped below zero. Wow. In China, the Chinese government announced it will close 2,000 coal mines within the next year and enacted new environmental laws that will curb industrial pollution with criminal charges. 2,000 coal mines they're going to close in a single year? That's what they said. Amazing. In the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency issued the first ever federal rules for the storage of coal ash, the millions of gallons of toxic waste left over from burning coal for electricity. That's the toxic stuff that gets stored up in ponds where the dams break and all of that poisonous water goes uh, spilling into the riverways. Yep, but environmental groups say those new rules are woefully inadequate to protect public health and drinking water supplies. Oh, you environmentalists. Vermont's only nuclear power plant has been shut down for good. Very good news. The citizens and the state legislature voted years ago to close it, but it was economics that finished it off, with the glut of cheap natural gas in the U.S. making all nuclear plants pretty much too expensive to run all across the country. And so what did we end up closing? About four or five nuke plants in the U.S. over the past year? Just so far. In Germany, wind energy in December produced more power than all of Germany's eight nuclear plants put together. Remember Solyndra, the solar manufacturer that went bankrupt after receiving a loan from the Department of Energy? I do. It was a boondoggle. It cost the U.S. billions and billions of dollars. Except it wasn't. Contrary to the right-wing media narrative, the Department of Energy's program is actually a raging success, returning $5 billion in profit to the American taxpayer so far. It's almost like it's the opposite of what they told me on Fox News. The Vatican announced that Pope Francis will issue an official papal letter in coming months to the world's $1 billion Catholics, focusing on the danger of climate change and the need to act. Predictably, the folks at Fox News are freaking out. And to now have a, a pope jump on that bandwagon would sow confusion, I think, among Catholics. Yes, the Catholics will be so confused. They'll be walking into confessional walls. That's just a smattering of what went on while we were out. You can catch up on the rest of it at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. And finally, while we were out, former New York Governor Mario Cuomo, father of current New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, passed away at the age of 82. He was one of the first politicians to sound the alarm on climate change and call for action all the way back in 1992 when he spoke at the Democratic National Convention. We'll give him the last word today. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. We must deal with what could be eventually the most lethal problem of all, a degraded environment one that threatens to convert the entire planet into a cosmic hothouse. I'm in a New York state of mind. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer and co-host of the Green News Report. Also to G, our soundboard operator, of course, and my guest today, Ernie Canning.
We'll be back with you, same Brad time, same Brad channel next week. Until then, you can find me on the Twitters at TheBradBlog and, of course, at BradBlog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, world. Good night, world.